we uh, are ready to get started, and so let's do what we always do first. Let's um, turn your notebook over, and let's talk about what build is. And I was thinking about this this morning, that um, build is not a program that itself does anything inside you. No program is that a church does. Build is not a program that if by your very attendance, you are just automatically different. Right? All that build is, and it really is, is a calling, hopefully from Scripture, communicated to you by your elders, that God is calling you to be a godly man. And um, God is calling you as a man as a godly man, to be a leader. Uh, to be a leader in your home, but the place that God is working in this world is not through homes primarily. It is through what his sons shed blood formed, the church. Christ shed his blood not to form the nuclear family, not trying to diminish the nuclear family. It's very important, right? Discipline 2 is all about the nuclear family. But Christ shed his blood to form a new man that nobody saw coming, that is a profound thing, that is a a display of the body of Christ on earth. And so God is calling you to be a godly man, but also to be a godly leader in the church. That's not for other guys to go do. That's for you, as a man, to be prepared to be a leader in the church. That doesn't mean all of you are going to serve as elders everywhere you might end up being. Um... But it does mean that you need to be a godly man and you need to step up and provide leadership as a man. That's just who you are. Um, you, you get to lead. And so Bill just calls you. It's a, it's a program that serves to call you to come and unite your life around these disciplines that, Lord willing, make you into a godly man and an effective leader at Grace Bible Church. Okay? It all starts with discipline one. It all begins with your inner man. It begins with the heart. You must be a man who takes responsibility yourself to shepherd your own heart to come to the Word of God, not merely to uh, gain theological facts, to be able to win arguments at work, to be able to think of something clever to say to somebody who's a skeptic or anything like that. You come to the Word of God first and most to to just feed your own soul with the God of the Word. You want to meet with Him. Your coming to the Word of God is worship. You want to worship the God who is revealed in the Word. And that's the kind of man you must be. You can't be any other kind of man than that. You can't skip over that and try to be a different kind of man. You need to be a man who meets with God in His Word all the time. And so you shepherd your heart to come to the Word of God so that you can meet with the God of the Word. And primarily what you're coming to look for is the crown jewel of the Bible, which is the Gospel. Right? The Gospel. You want to shepherd your heart to the Gospel of what God did uh, for you through Jesus Christ at His cross and His empty tomb. And you feed your soul there. And you worship and you love God there. And you fear God there. And you obey God there. You are a man who wants to be near to God. I love the the way that the psalmist expresses it in the Old Testament over and over and over. You get the feeling, as David writes, as Asaph writes, as any of the 
um, writers of the Psalms express it, you get the feeling like if God doesn't make himself tangible to them, they will die. Do you get that feeling as you read the Psalms? That needs to be you and me. So we open our Bibles every day. God, if I don't get near to you through your word, through revelation, not through just experience, but through your revelation of your word, if I don't draw near to you and if you don't draw near to me, I am nothing. I will, I will be dry. I will have nothing to offer anybody else. My wife, my family will find no benefit from me. I will be chaffed to them. And I need to be a different kind of man. I need to be a man who has been near to you. I need to be like Moses who went up on the mountain. He came back down. He didn't know his face was glowing. And they knew that that man had been with God. That's what your family needs. That's what the church needs, is men who have met with God through his word. How many different ways can we say it? I don't know. We'll think of some more, I'm sure. But that's it. You start there, and you work the rest of your life to become that. And by the way, do you ever graduate from this pursuit? Never. Will you ever perfect it in this life? Will you ever get a degree on your wall that says you did it? Never. You will fail at this. You will fall short of this. You will stumble in this for the rest of your life. You will never do it perfectly. The minute you feel confident about the way you're doing it, um, wake up. Okay? Pursue this, pursue this, pursue this, pursue this. And guess what heaven is? It's the day when you no longer have to shepherd your heart. Because you get to see the one that you were trying to rub away the sin in your eyes of your heart to see in the word of God. You won't have to shepherd your heart anymore because you'll be there. And you get finally the one that you were pursuing in the word of God the whole time. Okay, until then, you'll labor to shepherd your heart. If you do that, the first thing that you need to do after that, the first place of focus and interest for you and for me is in our homes. Jeff. Would it be correct to say you won't have to shepherd your heart once you're in eternity with God? Say it in a different way. Than that? All those things that we try to do and work at doing and pray that we can do to shepherd our heart, they're just going to happen automatically right. to a huge extent that we can't yeah. even imagine. The reason you and I have to shepherd our hearts now is because we are in a mixed condition. We are a new creature in Christ, which means that we are different than the creature we used to be than the old man. The old man was an unmixed condition. Through and through, only sin and rebellion and um, wickedness. When we become a new creature in Christ, what happens is we become a mixed condition. The new creation is a mixed condition. The new creation is not glorification. The new creation is a mixed condition where you have now a new heart, a new desire. You have new uh, intentions. You have new focuses. You have new lots of things, but you still also have indwelling sin. And the reason you must shepherd your heart is because you still have indwelling sin. And that sin is a ball and chain. It's not just a ball and chain. That's inanimate. It doesn't want... To go in, it doesn't have a thought. Your flesh is not a ball and chain. Your flesh is like a rabid, wicked dog pulling you the other way from God, nipping at you whenever it can. And you must shepherd your heart by dragging it towards God. 
dragging your sorry carcass before God in His Word every day. That's what you do. When you die, glorification. You are set free from that in all of the ways finally that have been promised to you now, that have been accredited to you now as if they are a done deal. You get all of that. There's no more dog pulling you the other way. So that's why I say you don't have to shepherd your heart anymore because you finally are completely everything that God ever intended you to be in Christ but that you could not be because of your flesh yet. And so, yes, they happen automatically. Um, And that is going to be a joy. That's going to be the greatest day that lasts forever you ever knew. Okay? In the meantime, the place that you bring this influence the most is in your home. The people that you live with must be benefited by this condition, by this kind of man that you are. Your wife needs to be impacted by this. Um, Your children need to be impacted by this. Your parents, if you live at home, need to be impacted by this. Your roommates, if you have roommates, need to be impacted by this. Um, the, the, The temptation for man is to try to get outside of his house all of the time because he has convinced himself, he has deceived himself that all of the important people are outside of his home. All of the important tasks are outside of my house. I, I just sleep here. I, I treat the people I live with like roommates, uh, like servants, and I've got to get out of here because I have to go work, and I've got to get to the people and the, the demands that are really important. That's where my life is defined out there as a man. And it, we are, we're like this from junior high up. Uh, at some point, something in the, in the sinful flesh blossoms And all of a sudden, when you hit about junior high age, a young man is convinced that everybody in his house are the dumbest people on the planet, and they must get out. And then you graduate from high school thinking that same way, and you finally move in with your buddies at college, and that's fun for a while, and then after a while, you recognize that I I live with more dumb people here. And then you just ignore them, and you just go after other people, but then you deceive yourself into thinking, but when I get married... And I create a new house, I would never be that way to my princess. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. So will I. We all do. And we have this tendency to just keep going over the relationships, playing leapfrog over them. And you give that kind of man a responsibility to lead in the church. And he's a man who won't have integrity as he leads because he's playing leapfrog over the people that that are closest to him. Um, so you need to shepherd your heart to care for the people in your home. There needs to be a gospel aroma in your household, um, first and foremost. That person who is shepherding his heart, not playing leapfrog over his home, you want that man to step into the lives of anybody and everybody he can within the church and outside of the church for evangelism, for edification, for the building up of the body. You want that man. That is a man who is striving to be a man of integrity in his own heart before God and in his family before God and before the church. That's the man you want to be stepping in. That's discipline three, right? We're in discipline four. Last time we met together and today we're going to be spending time in discipline four, which are the qualifications. And primarily in build, we focus on the qualifications for deacon in 1 Timothy 3. And so today we'll actually look at the qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy 3. Um, Really, all of the qualifications that you'll see today could be summarized in following one of the first three categories of build, uh, disciplines of build. What is he like in his heart before God? What is he like with his family? And what is he like in ministry with other people? 
Those are character qualifications and abilities for elders uh, in the elder qualifications that basically are summed up in the first three. So what we're going to do today is give you, um, I'll point out to you what you guys got last time, the little um, handout like this from last week. And if you didn't get one from last week, I've got some extras here. I'll give it to you in a little bit. We're going to give you something that you can prayerfully uh, work at to for- focus on your these qualifications in First Timothy. So that you can be praying before God, God, make me into a qualified man. Here's what this qualification says about me. And it you can pray about it, okay? Uh, discipline five is the hermeneutic. What would all of this be if we didn't handle God's word accurately? What would all of this be if we weren't interpreting the Bible well? If we were coming to the Bible to meet with the God of the word, but we were taking everything spiritually, allegorically. And we were mi- then we would be missing what God was intending to reveal about himself through the normal worst use of language. Um, and so we're going to talk about w- how we want to interpret our Bibles. And we'll be doing that as you'll see. If you look on your um, calendar schedule for Build, that's coming up shortly. I think we've got two more meetings after this one. And then we're going to have three on, on the hermeneutic in number five. And then lastly, the last discipline is um, the, the biblical vision and the gospel purpose of Grace Bible Church. We're calling you to be godly men and godly leaders, not at any church, but at a specific church, this church. And so you need to know what the biblical vision of our church is and what the gospel purpose is of our church. And that is summed up in drawing, uh, sorry, not drawing in, that's the last part. God, uh, the glory of God and the cross of Christ uh, in the transformation of life by the Spirit. That's the biblical vision. And that moves us in the gospel to draw in, build up, and send out. And we'll talk more about that on our last time together. Okay? Second to last time together, I think. Or fourth to last. I can't. We're going to talk about it before the end. I don't have my calendar in front of me, so I don't have it. Uh, Elders, do you have anything you want to add or anybody as we think about that and rehearse that? This is what needs to come out of you when somebody kicks you in the middle of the night when you're when your son or daughter comes and wakes you up and asks you for a, a glass of water, you say, Shepherd, your heart, home. What? What? What do you want? That's what you do. And you just come out at any time. Okay? All right. Um, I'm going to read Acts 6, verses 1 to 6. And then we're going to flip over to 1 Timothy 3. And I'll read that section to you as well. Okay, so Acts 6, and then we'll pray together. Acts 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And so the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip... Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these 
um, they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That's what we covered last time. We talked about how the word deacon is not used in there, and how the word elder is not even used in there, and yet what we, I think, can safely uh, conclude is that you have something like prototype elders working in the church in Jerusalem, and the prototype elders are Peter and the apostles, and there is something like a prototype deacon working here in these seven men that were chosen. Now, let's go forward in our Bibles to 1 Timothy 3. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. I want to include the overseer section, the elder section. Probably a good, close to 30 years has passed. Somewhere in the neighborhood of that. It is a trustworthy statement, verse 1. Paul says, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he uh, will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then here's our section. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So, you see in Acts 6, the church is very young, early on in its um, uh, the beginnings. And by the time you get to Paul, and he's writing letters to church leaders like Timothy... He has specific offices now. And there is actually a a qualification list, a grid through which to think when you're looking for men in these positions. Titus 1 includes another list of elders um, that is given as well where there is much overlap. Now what I want you to do is I want to go to one more passage uh, that's still introductory here. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. Turn there with me. And I want you to see that in the church of Philippi, Paul had taught and understood that the church was full of these um, different categories, or that these different categories of, of servants and offices were in place. Look at Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints 
in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with my joy in every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is uh, impressed by the way that they shared in the gospel expansion. Uh, They did it, um, obviously, through supporting him. They participated in the gospel by helping send him as a missionary apostle on and taking care of his needs when he was there. But they also have been sharing in it by the very fact that they are, well, they're Christians. And that's what Christians do, is they participate in the gospel. They share in the gospel ministry. And... What is, uh, you see here is that Paul basically kind of sums up in his greeting the, the church in this way. To all of the saints, and by the way, some of you saints are overseers and deacons. And all of you are participating in the gospel. And this is exactly what we saw in Acts 6 last time. The church only knew to advance the gospel in Jerusalem. And that's what they were doing. The apostles were leading the way in it. They were the ones who were speaking and they would not shut up and they were getting beaten for it. And they said in Acts 6, we will not give up the ministry of the word of God, meaning the advancement of the gospel in Jerusalem, the proclamation of the gospel in very trying conditions. We're not going to stop doing that because there are widows who need to be fed. So let's find some men of godly character who can do that. And the result was in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, therefore... The church continued to grow. The, the word of the Lord continued to expand. It was an effective move that these prototype elders made to help the church stay on its gospel mission path. Everybody continued to participate in the gospel in Acts 6. As Paul writes in Philippians, the, the, he's writing to those who participate in the gospel. What I don't want us to lose sight of here in the, the first number one here on your paper is just the greater context in which deacons sit. I don't want to talk about deacons and just look at deacons only. That would be like from the illustration last week where we would talk about some people who are a really well-ordered kitchen and a well-staffed kitchen and they were serving men all in this, dressed the same food. The bigger context was that was a battleship racing across the ocean to go attack an enemy and protect its people. That's the big picture. We don't want to talk about deacons and just talk about an office. We're talking about what the church is. The church advances the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of us as saints participate in that. And so even today, as we jump into 1 Timothy 3, I don't want to lose sight of that. We're not just talking about a guy who gets to wear a little badge that says deacon. Okay? We're not going to hand out any badges. We don't need no badges. Or whatever it is. But, uh... Okay, we're, we're talking about the big picture here. We don't want to lose sight of that. Okay? All right. Here's what I find interesting. Saints, uh, overseers, and deacons. Uh, would you go to a church where there was leadership but there were no saints? Just general... That, that would be a weird church, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be like that. Would you go to a church where there were just saints, but no elders. How many of you have ever gone to a church, though, where there were saints and there were elders, but there were no deacons? 
Why is that acceptable? Why? Why is the deacon category negotiable? We don't need that. We would never go to a church where there aren't saints as a whole. We would never go to a church where there aren't elders. But deacons is just this weird thing nobody knows, and every church has got their own little weird way of looking at it, and that's just, I'm just, it's wrong. Mike. Yeah, um, I have no idea. Um, there's, there's, I mean, look, there's, it is, the, the scripture is clear, I think, in regards to elders, overseers, pastors, shepherd, the, that's, that's clear. I think that's unmistakable from Paul's writings to Peter and First Peter 5 and, um, People just have their way of wanting to organize and lead, and sometimes that just kind of overpowers passages. And the question for us would be, in what weird ways do we do that, that we aren't can't even see, that we need to be humble about and approachable about? And I don't know. Some of it's carryover from you know earlier church history where maybe the church didn't reform itself enough, and it just kind of hangs on. Um, mixing church and politics together when the state and the church kind of come together in Europe like they did in ways and in, in, in England and you kind of terms carry weird significance in ways that they shouldn't um, I don't know I, I find it very refreshing to be in a non-denomination and be able to have freedom as a Bible church to be able to just say, you know what? I don't want to ignore church history and I don't want to be pretend like I'm an island. But I, my, I trust my Bible and I want my Bible to tell me what an elder is. And I want my Bible to tell me what a deacon is. I don't want a denomination to necessarily tell me what a deacon is. Only I'll, I'll listen to them only so as they tell me what the Bible says clearly. Not what their denomination thinks. Not what their catechism statement says. Not what anything... I want, this is, I want to just come here. And I find that to be very... Refreshing. Are there drawbacks with that? Yeah. Um, there's drawbacks of being a, an independent, non-affiliated Bible church. You you can become an island in ways in which you, when you really need help, where do you turn? I know we had to do that in our early days when I came. We, we needed help because we were uh, dissolving in ways, membership-wise, and, and, and we had trouble with it. You know, our mother church, and where did we turn for help? We, we had to create fellowship with another church that was like-minded, and we went to Sovereign Grace in Gilbert, and they they pastored us. Yeah.
The deacons there existed before the church did. They were yeah, so, yeah. yeah. There are deacons and like the pastor is under the deacon board. Right. So there's yeah. commands right. some freedom with this timing issue that is taken. Yeah, and that, that's a great and, and And that's, I mean, that's what we've, that's where we've viewed ourselves and we will not graduate from this view of we are constantly working and laboring to um, continue to develop Elders, by God's grace, God only God makes an elder. Men don't make an elder, but we get to serve in that by providing context like this. And um, when we started here, we didn't have deacons, or we did, but then they all left. And there was one left, and then we had to start, you know, working again at this, and we had to give this a lot of thought. That's why this is in build, is because we spent I don't know how many years, guys, at the beginning, when I at least when I first came, eight years ago, that. We labor to figure out what a deacon is and and uh, what it's supposed to be in, in scripture. So, yes, you're. I don't want to poo-poo a church that's not there yet. The, the goal is be aiming for it, be making steps towards it. You can't you can't have a church without saints. That's not going to work. You 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 can't have a biblical church without an elder. You would think. Uh, but you can have a Uh, that would be what I would call into question. Okay. I'm saying, what in as you read 1 Timothy 3, tell me where you get the sense from that passage that it's okay, that deacons are in such a different category than elder, that, well, you can have something legitimate without them. I guess I'm thinking about it in Acts 6. And, and my question would be, you're right, there, what, is, what is true is that there will be some needs that will all of a sudden come up on the scene that will be of such a nature that it will require a servant layer of leadership that you did not have identified before. That's okay. To pretend, though, like, therefore, everything that was going on before, we, we just didn't need deacons. I don't see 1 Timothy 3 spelling out deacons that way. I think the goal would be to constantly, if I, if I don't understand Timothy right, or what Paul's writing to Timothy, uh, you better be laboring by God's grace to put the things out in front of the men in a church that the Spirit would love to use to draw a man into elder qualification and would love to draw a man into deacon qualification. And you better be going after it because it's just a matter of time before either something comes up where you're going to need a servant layer of leadership, it's going to demand, it's going, you're going to need it yesterday, and if you haven't been pre- preparing for it, they went into the body and they found men who already were full of the Spirit and full of faith, godly men. They found those men. And the church has to labor to do the soil to make sure men are ready to just grow in that environment so that when the time comes, you can reap and you say, here's one. And I would say even before that, look already. Great, you don't have a crisis. Praise God. 
But what do you have going on where you would it would be really beneficial for the elders to have a servant layer of leadership that can do what only they should do and can do best so that the elders can continue to be freed up to advance the gospel in significant ways? I think we've been very arbitrary as the church in America about deacons. Eric. Um, as you're saying, you know, a church needs to have all the, the saints, the elders, and the deacons. And I was wondering if somebody who is new to our church, mm-hmm. how long would it take them before they realized that we did have deacons? Mm-hmm. Um, because we often don't talk about that. Like I said, staff. Yeah. No, that's a good point. We could strengthen. Um, that's a way that we could strengthen um, our co- our commitment that deacons are very important is by is by making it more visible. Um, I, so I appreciate that. That's good. We could be more com- even more consistent and complete that way. Now I'm going to turn the corner and I'm going to start covering the material, or we're never going to get there. Or you're going to go home at ten. Um, so let's let's go to number two, deacons. The importance of tested and approved character, 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 12. Um, we just were there, so if you need to get back to 1 Timothy, you can do that. Um, this is a spiritual character grid laid out by Paul. And my question for you, based on what we talked about last week in Acts 6, is this a new idea? And I'm going to answer the question for you. The answer to that question is yes and no. It is no, this isn't a new idea in the sense that Acts 6.3 revealed that the first prototype elders, Peter and the other apostles, they back then had a spiritual character grid in mind from the beginning. That was the Holy Spirit's intent, I believe. But yes, it is a new idea in the sense that verse um, 10 says in 1 Timothy 3 shows us how the early church's thinking and conviction of the spiritual character evaluation of these servants, how it grew, how it was refined, how it was developed, how it progressed uh, in the apostles' teaching. No, these need, men need to first be tested. Really, where did they learn that? Experience of what they had done over time. And so this is a great example how even in the New Testament you need to read your Bible forward. Okay? That's the hermeneutic. Start at the left and go to the right and just read forward uh, because you see a benefit here of how the church thought about deacons. Um, Interestingly enough, we're going to start off with this uh, character sandwich thing that I'm calling. Uh, You see those two blanks there? This is the tested and approved character sandwich and you've got a couple of arrows that come off that uh, little diagram there. The tested and approved character sandwich. I'm going to start with verse 10 in this list, not with verse 8. Um... Paul didn't start here in this list with the character sandwich. He didn't start at the beginning like he does with the elders and say they must be above reproach. He didn't end his list of character stuff with, and by the way, they must be above reproach. But right in the middle of the list, 
where, where you can't really get it out um, separate from the whole list. Right in the middle, he has this tested and approved character sandwich. There's your two words to put in the blanks, tested and approved. He has it right there in the middle. Why did he embed this right in the middle? Yes? Step aside, what was the first one? Tested. Oh, you have. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I missed. I skipped. That's in number one. That's advancing the gospel mission. I'm sorry. I had that circled right there, and I, I went right past it. So, in number one, the greater context in which deacons sit is the entire body of Christ is advancing the gospel mission of Jesus Christ. Okay. Number two, deacons. The importance of tested and approved character. Those are your two words that go into the blanks there. Now, why did he put this right in the middle of the deacon qualification list? I think it's so that it can't be extracted easily from the list. Um, it's much more difficult to separate this testing and this above reproach aspect from the character qualifications. Now, let me talk a little bit about that first arrow that comes up and off for then um, these men must first be tested. Let's talk about that for just a minute. You can write um, a little bit of this up on where that arrow is. Um, tested here is, is, is the idea of tested like a metal to show its genuineness. It's where you would take a metal and you would melt it down and you would skim off all of the impurities in order to show the genuineness of what is left, of, of the metal that is there. So it's testing something with fire for the purpose of showing its genuineness. It is not testing so as to highlight and accent a weakness. You're not trying to test these men to show them, to make them feel their weakness. No, you're, you're watching them, you're testing them so that the, what is genuine within them from the gospel and the grace of God, that it comes out more clearly. Okay? Beyond reproach on the bottom arrow. What does it mean to be beyond reproach? Uh, that means they cannot be arraigned as a, like in a court of law. They can't be brought up on a charge. Uh, they're unblameable. And then what do you find in verse 10, sitting right in the middle? Okay, look at verse 10. These men must first also be tested. That's how the verse starts. How does the verse end? Beyond reproach. And what is right in the middle of that tested and beyond reproach? Let them serve. Let them serve. Serving is right in the middle. The leadership of the Ephesian church here, Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is uh, overseeing the, the church that gathers in Ephesus. That leadership of the Ephesian church, they were to have some kind of an observation relationship with these men. Let them be tested first. Timothy, you're going to need to have watched them first. You're going to need to be familiar with their lives first. You're going to need to watch them in shepherding situations first. You need to be in an observation relationship with them. This is not the idea of... Hey, we're going to make you a deacon. You're going to try it out for six months, and then we're going to reevaluate if we want to keep having you do that. That is not what is meant by let them be tested first. It means, no, just watch them in ministry. Observe what they are like in ministry. Once that some kind of testing is done, they will come forth as gold and let them serve. And so one of the things that we want to, that we hope build will accomplish is in this room, you have one, two, three, four, and a half. Because <laughs> he's an intro. 
almost five. Am I missing one of us? Yeah, Smed doesn't count. No, but what we're trying to do is um, have elders accessible to the men and elders closer to the men in the body so that we can begin some kind of an observation relationship with you men so that we can be close to watch you how you serve in the body. Okay? Let me talk a little bit more about beyond reproach. What does that mean? Yes? Well, I just wanted to make yes. a comment. I just, it, to me, it's just the, the beautiful upside-down economy of the church is shown here. Mm. You test them, and in, in the world, they go up. Mm. But in the church, they go down. That's right. It's, it's just, it's it's just humble. Thank you for pointing that out. It's good. Beyond reproach, this is often in Paul's list, you know, of qualifications. This is that umbrella summary qualification concept. Uh, the same idea ex- exists here with the elder list, although he uses different words for it. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 2, uh, an overseer then must be above reproach. Verse 10, uh, let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. There are two different words, but it's the same idea being uh, communicated. The, the qualifications specifically in the list, they show what it means to be above reproach. But above reproach or beyond reproach is kind of an umbrella concept. Um, These are spiritual qualities that all Christians are to uh, possess. Did you know that? Did you know that you, as a Christian, are supposed to be above reproach? It's easy for us because we come across those words and they stick out to us when we look at elder. Oh yeah, elders need to be above reproach. But then when we read those words in other parts of our Bibles, we... They just, they just glide right past, and we forget. And so I want to not let them glide past this morning. Watch this. All Christians are supposed to be above reproach. Go to Philippians 2. Uh, verse 14. I'm going to go quick, so you've got to be fast. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be, watch this, blameless and innocent. Children of God, here's another word, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Who's he talking to? The saints in the Philippi. All of you. Blameless and above reproach. How about 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. Now back up to verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is a church that at most is probably three months old. Three months old believers are supposed to be beyond reproach, above reproach. How about Colossians 1? Go back to Colossians 1, verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless, and here's another one, and beyond reproach. Christians are supposed to be beyond reproach. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 just so that you don't get the feeling that there's just maybe a couple of these verses. Chapter 1, verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 1. Who, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
How about 1 Timothy 5, verse 7? Watch this. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. Who's the they? The family of the widow. The family of the widow needs to be beyond reproach in the way that they care. Look, Christians are supposed to be above reproach. So then in what sense is a deacon to be above reproach? That's chapter 3, verse 10. And we know that elders are supposed to be blameless or above reproach. That's 1 Timothy 3, 2 and Titus 1, 6. So in what sense, what's this mean then? Why is that a qualification for deacon when everybody has it? By the way, all of the qualifications for elders, apart from being able to teach, which is a skill or an ability, all of them are found to be qualifications or character qualities that all believers are supposed to have. So what is going on here? It's this. Deacons and elders should be leaders in these qualities that we all have. Okay? Leaders in these qualities that we all have. The body is supposed to be able to look to those in office as moral examples for themselves. Deacons, elders. Want to know what it means to be above reproach so that you know how to be above reproach? Well, get near to a man who is hopefully biblically qualified as a deacon or an elder. And they should be a leader in that quality. I love this quote from John Calvin. He says about um, this passage, about verse 10 in 1 Timothy 3, he says, those chosen should not be unknown. Right? They need to be in an observation relationship with with the leadership. Their integrity should be ascertained by all. This means this choice is not to fall at random and without selection on any that come to hand or mind, but those men are to be chosen who are approved by their past life in such a manner that after what may be called full inquiry or the testing, they are ascertained to be well qualified. I think the primary area for a man to be uh, tested and watched carefully is small group. Your small group. The elders want to see how you care for people on a weekly basis. And you don't have to be given a title in your small group to do that. You don't have to be a leader. You don't have to be a co-leader. You just need to be a a member of the body of Christ who, in that small group, you show initiative to care for one another. That's what an elder wants to see. An elder does not want to see a man who wants to leapfrog over that for a position. We want to observe you caring for others in your small group well. Okay? So that's... I think the primary test place to watch for testing. All right, now let's actually talk about the, the qualifications. Chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity. Dignity. Here's a blank for you to fill in. A serious bearing in life because of a serious mind and character. A serious bearing in life because of a serious mind and character. The idea here is there is seriousness on the inside that works its way outside. Okay? Seriousness of mind leads to seriousness and sobriety of action. Dignity on the inside becomes dignity on the outside. It's a quality of seriousness in the outward character. It's observable, this seriousness is. And you know what? Here's what I think is really important. It should be appealing. The the dignity that you see in somebody else, the sobriety that you would see in this kind of a person, it should be something that's appealing, that you look at it and go, man, I want to be, I need to be like that guy 
in his dignity, in his sobriety, in his seriousness. He's worthy of honor. I want to be that way. It's not an overbearing seriousness. It's not a, an alienating seriousness that makes you feel like, man, that guy is so serious. He's just intense. It just burns me to be around him. Um, what would be the opposite of this? Being silly all the time? Being flippant? Being able to make light of serious matters? Um, this is not a joy-killing quality, like you just can't have joy because, well, I'm, I'm not happy because I'm dignified. No, it's not that at all. It's not coldness of heart. It's not coldness of mind. It's having a serious bearing in life. You, you, I mean, we're going to talk about this tomorrow, guys. Peter stands up to his generation. It's a perverse generation. He calls it such. And he says to that generation, be saved from this. If you stay where you are, you will perish before God. It takes a dignified man, somebody who's understanding things rightly, to, to have that approach in life, that you can't just look at the culture of your generation and go, yeah, it's really no big deal. We can play together. Really? In light of eternity? No. Dignity. Do you see this qualification shaping your outward conversations? The things you talk about, do you see your conversation shaped by this? If so, it, it should be first because your prayers reflect this, this seriousness of mind before God. Your thought life reflects this um, seriousness of mind. Your attitudes, you want to watch it come from the inside out. Second qualification, the, the deacons must not be double-tongued, verse 8. Not double-tongued. Um, here's your blank. As notes are compared on the man's words, discrepancies do not become apparent. Discrepancies. If you were homeschooled and need some help spelling, look at somebody next to you. I'm not making a joke about all homeschool, just that homeschool table over there. Um, I'm sorry. That's not even fair to do. Cass, <laughs> can you just erase that? Okay, so here's the idea. Double tongue. Here's what the word actually is. It is, it is. It literally in the Greek means two words. Two words. Okay? A man cannot be a man who has two words. Double-tongued. A tongue that talks this way, and then a tongue that talks this way. Just one word. One tongue. Okay? Um, it could be the idea of, of being a tale-bearer or a gossip. Um that could be, but I think it's more the idea that there is there's consistency in what the man says. He doesn't. Um, here's here's the way that I, that it most troubles me, perhaps in my own life, is when I am around maybe my fellow elders or others in the body, and we might be talking about something that's going on in the body that's maybe challenging. I know how I need to talk. And I know how I need to see it, and I know how I need to view it, and I represent it that way. I can go home sometimes to my wife, and I've kind of unraveled by that point. I've become maybe overwhelmed by it. I've allowed myself to become anxious about it. And now I begin to talk about that situation in another tongue, in another way, with other words, where it's not right, it's not fair, it's unjust, it's this. And so I just spoke one way to my brother's, and my fellow saints in the body about it, and then I went home, and I spoke about it in a completely other way. 
to somebody who I could complain to in my mind, thinking that I can do this, and it's okay. So I could be a man of two words. It's not consistent. I'm more afraid of that than I am of, in one group, I never cuss, in another group, I do cuss. I'm concerned about that. I, not that I, I don't do that. But I'd be more concerned about the fact that I just can easily talk one way to one group, and then I can complain in another with my wife, my family. You may have two human audiences, guys, but you always have one divine audience. And the way to solve your two words problem is by reminding yourself there's only one audience I'm speaking before and talking before today that matters most. And that doesn't cause you to neglect and not care for people well with your words. It only means that you will care better for them because you're thinking about God as you speak and that will minister to the souls of the people that you're with. So it's sincerity with your words. It's your speech is characterized by integrity and consistency and honesty. Can you imagine this? Here, imagine the situation in Acts 6. There's a whole disgruntled group of people who are not being fed. And then there's Peter and the apostles over here. And you are supposed to be the men who are going to go step into the middle of that complaint that arose. And what are you going to hear when you're there? And when you're there, you're supposed to represent the leadership that laid hands on you. And you could portray to them, after hearing all of their complaints, you could go, yeah, I know. Peter, this one got by Peter. Peter, you know, we know where Peter's strong and we know where he's weak. And this is where he's weak. And, and then you go back over to Peter and, oh, then you talk to Peter like he's just the best thing since sliced bread. And what a, what a godly leader you are and what a wonderful man you are. You see, that is, can you be, see the temptation? I'm going to take your side over here in this complaint. And I'm going to hear, and I'm going to sound like I'm with you. And then you're going to come over here on this side and sound like you're just right with the leadership. A deacon needs to be a man who doesn't have two words, but only one. Not two tongues, only one. So does the content of your speech or your portrayal of what happened change as your audience changes? I'm just being honest with you. I find that happening far too much. My audience changes. I can talk about it differently. I want to become a man who does a better job of that, of, of, of just having one word. Um, how about the next one? Not addicted to much wine, verse 8. Uh, here's your blank. A repeated habitual turning of thought to or use of alcohol. It's a repeated habitual turning of thought in your mind to alcohol or use of alcohol. I'll tell you what I mean by this. Uh, there's a present tense verse here uh, on the addicted. Um, that's what shows the habitual action. Um, and what's in view here is thought and how your thought and judgment is impacted by alcohol's effects. Uh, and then the reason for that is because of something grammatical that is going on here. The verb is used with the dative, and you don't need to necessarily know what that is. Uh, it's just that it shows that it's an inward, it's a connection to thought, that the, that the thoughts are constantly falling towards this use of alcohol or alcohol itself. Uh, it, it's, it's basically a person who has become preoccupied with alcohol with alcohol's presence in his thought life. Um, it'd be like somebody working repeatedly in his mind 
to figure out when's the next time that I can that I can have another drink. Not because I'm necessarily I'm an alcoholic, but I just my mind is it's it's my center of gravity. I I just fall towards this. It's a part of my life. It's a part of who I am. And and so when's the next time I'm going to be able to do this? Can I? When I can I? When I? There's continual influence. Um, if he wanted to say not drunk, he could have said not drunk. I think he's trying to get to something here that's going on in the mind before drunkenness. Um, now let's talk about, there's two parts. Not addicted, too much wine, right? Now let's talk about both of those two parts for a second. Um, both of them need to carry their appropriate weight in order to complement the other. For instance, um, let's take the blank over here, wine. Okay, not addicted, too much. Take that word out for a minute and put anything in there. In one sense, you could substitute anything else there, right? Not addicted to prescription drugs. Not addicted to, obviously, just drugs. Um, nicotine. Hey, easy. Easy. <laughs> and nobody say caffeine or coffee. <laughs> Don't go there. Yes, Jeff, that's, that, is, that, is, that is the point. Yeah, in one sense, you could. In one sense, you could. You could substitute anything there. But I want you to all recognize the galaxy of difference between being addicted to sugar and being addicted to much wine. Can we all acknowledge, duh? Okay, so in this here, we can't just, in another sense, substitute anything in there. But what you do want to ask yourself is, what kind of a character is it in a man that allows him to be enslaved so easily to, to anything? So in one sense, it matters that it's wine, because wine has an effect on the, the, the mind with its alcohol in a way that is a little bit different than the way sugar has its effect on your metabolism or caffeine has an effect on, on you. Look, you don't want to deal with me when I have a caffeine headache. I know that. That's why I drink more coffee. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but so there, each one needs to carry its proper weight, okay? Um, you don't want to be addicted to anything. That would be a character flaw that would be, uh, be troubling. Uh, but let's, let's face it, um, caffeine or sugar or whatever, it, it's a, it, that's a little different ballpark than something like wine. So here's my question for you guys. When was the last time you evaluated your use of alcohol? And we've talked about this before. Um, we don't have any kinds of... Um, I've been at churches where they said their policy was you cannot be a deacon on the basis of this here if you drink at all, ever. And so if you were going to be a deacon at that church, you had to sign, I will not drink alcohol. I don't think that's what he's saying. And we don't have rules like that. But those of us who like to run away from rules like that because we recognize what they are, you know what we tend to do? We tend to never evaluate our use of alcohol. And that's wrong. And that's dangerous. Evaluate your use of alcohol. Please. Evaluate it. If you're using it and you're not thinking about it at all in your use of it, because why? I, just because I can. I can. I can do that. 
something's not right. God is putting a, something in front of you to let you evaluate. You may evaluate yourself and, and clear yourself. And you might be right before God and you might not be right before God. But at least evaluate yourself. Let somebody else help evaluate you. Next, they cannot be fond of sordid gain, verse 8. Um, here's your blank. Loving the gain of wealth in such a way that it causes my character to be questioned. You can gain wealth in a way that does not cause your character to be questioned at all, right? You can love the gain of wealth in a way that would make people go, huh? What's going on with that man's character? It's material, monetary gain from a questionable motive, perhaps. Maybe gaining it in a dishonest way, dishonest gain. Sorted in the sense of dishonest. Um, In other words, I think what Paul and I'm going to try to read a little bit between the lines and so I, I put this out humbly not as authoritative but imagine you're feeding a bunch of widows bread my guess is you might have had some interaction with some money from the church Paul and the guys would come from all of the Gentile churches and they would bring a, their offering to Jerusalem and I'm somebody had to deal with that and did they have to deal with a man who tried to gain personally and profit personally through money that was coming in? Maybe so. Um, Deacons in our church are going to be dealing with, operating within budgets, are going to have expenditures in their areas of ministry. They're going to have reimbursements in their ministry. Um, Can you imagine this? What would have happened in Acts 6 if they stepped into helping those that was a potentially racially charged moment, right? The Greek widows are being shunned by the Hebrew believers, okay? Imagine if a deacon steps in the middle of that and all of a sudden it comes out in the midst of that there's a financial scandal because he was pocketing some money for himself. What would that have done to the moment? Okay, men who are going to be stepping into situations like that need to not be fond of sordid gain. Um, question for you, how much attention are you giving to your spending habits and the little things? Always start there. The little things, the little things, the little things. Uh, be faithful in the little things first. Bigger responsibilities will come later as you are faithful. Next one, verse 10. Uh, verse, sorry, verse 9. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What on earth is this? Here's, a, here's the way that I would summarize that. Here's your blank. An ever-present grasp on what is believed which causes the conscience to affirm, to affirm, not condemn the man or his ministry. What do I mean by an ever-present grasp? Uh, The verb there is in the present tense, and so it's an ever-present. You're always grabbing onto it and holding to it. You're always strengthening your grip, repositioning your hands to get a a better grip on it. It's an ever-present grasp on the mystery of the faith. Summarizing that with what is believed. Okay, remember how Paul uses the word mystery and how um, many of the New Testament writers use the word mystery. The word mystery is just the opposite of the way that we often use mystery. What is a mystery? I'll tell you what's a mystery. Is um, what causes the corn patterns in fields in Scotland or whatever. That's crop circles. That's an, I don't know, what is that? We don't know. I mean, well, somebody knows probably. I don't know. But I'm trying to think of something that's a mystery that, that we don't have all of the answers to. 
Paul didn't use the word mystery that way. Paul used the word mystery as if at one time it was unknown, but now it is a revealed mystery. We use the word mystery in the sense of it's, it's not revealed yet. Paul used it just the opposite. It's a revealed mystery. The mystery of the faith. The mystery of the faith. Um, the word the faith is not believing, the act of believing. It's, it's the content of the gospel. Paul uses the word faith that way many times. And I think it probably, I think this mystery of the faith probably includes the doctrine of how the church is supposed to be functioning together, not just Jesus Christ crucified uh, for the atonement of sin, forgiveness of sin, expiation, propitiation, justification, not just those core elements of the gospel faith, but I think the mystery of the faith here is also involved here with Paul in, in terms of how the church is to be structured, how the church is to be organized, how the church is to view its leaders. Because where could you go in the Old Testament to get that? Where do you go to the Old Testament to appeal to what a deacon is? It's not there. There needed to be a revelation of something that wasn't clear before of what came, and that's the New Testament. That's Paul's writings. Um, so faith is the content of what is believed, the gospel, and the mystery, the mystery that's associated with this is, is probably, in my opinion, tied with the church. And your conscience is a gift from God that either affirms your actions and your thinking or it condemns you, it brings conviction about what you think, about what you say, about your attitudes, about your deeds, about your desires, about how you conduct your relationships. And so having biblical conviction in action here is, 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 what they, um, is what is going on. And the conscience does not condemn this man. He holds to the teaching of the apostles in such a way that his conscience affirms him, not condemn him. Does that make sense? So holding to that constantly would mean holding to the Apostle Paul's words, holding to the New Testament. Here's questions for you. What role does the Word of God play in your life, guys? Do you have a clear conscience about these things? Let me ask you this. Do you have a clear conscience about, first, the way you approach God's Word? Do you have a clear conscience about the manner in which you approach God's Word? Do you approach it with, if I don't come here, I'm going to die? Or do you come here approaching it with a, with a lighthearted attitude? Do you have a clear conscience about the way in which you approach God's word? Do you have a clear conscience uh, in, in the motive that you have in coming to God's word? What's your motive for coming here? We talked about that with Discipline 1, right? Um, do you have a, a clear conscience about that? Do you have a, a clear conscience about the frequency with which you come to God's word? Do you know that you need to be in the Bible more than two days a week? And your conscience is just keep shopping at you? Okay? Do you have a clear conscience about the level of doing that accompanies your hearing of the Word of God? Are you doing what you're reading and what you're hearing in God's Word? You need to have a clear conscience. A deacon needs to be one who's leading others forth in that clear conscience. Um, drop down to verse 12. We're going to skip verse 11 because it's just hard and I don't want to deal with it. Verse 12 we're going to come back to it at the end, I promise. Um, husbands of one wife, a one-woman man. Here's your blank, a one-woman man. Deacons need to be husbands of one wife. See, now we're entering into discipline two on the home, right? 
This is not a marriage qualification. Paul is not saying the man must be married if he's going to be a deacon. Um, this qualification is not merely that. It's because a man can be married and not be a one-woman man, and he should not be serving as a deacon or an elder. Do you understand that? You can have one wife in your one home with your one family, but not be a one-woman man. Okay, so this is not merely a marriage qualification. Uh, and it's more than just remaining sexually pure in your deeds. Okay? But your thought life is the place to start here. That you strive to be a man with thoughts. You strive to be a man with desires. A man with love and affection for one woman only. And it would be your wife. What if you're single? You are striving to be a man with thoughts and desires and love and affection for one woman only. Don't know who she is yet? Or you might know who she is. You might be dating her, courting her, engaged to her, whatever, but you're, you're still working as a one-woman man. It's possible to be a one-woman man before you're married. And the same would apply here for the, this qualification within the elders. Uh, so this, this qualification, from our opinion here at Grace, does not prohibit a single man from serving as a deacon nor as an elder. Verse 12, they need to be good managers of their children and their own households. We're still in discipline two here on the home. Here's your blank to fill in. He provides direct and ongoing oversight of children and household affairs. He provides direct and ongoing oversight. There's your word. Oversight of children and household affairs. Um, the, the verb here in verse 12, good managers, is um, a word that is made up of a, it has a, a, a main word and it has a preposition attached to the front end of it. It's the idea of standing before. Standing before. He is a good stander before others. He, he has a good standing before others. And it doesn't mean standing like reputation. It means proximity. That he stands as one who is before his household. He's standing before it to manage it, to care for it. He's in proximity to it. There's a connection between the deacon and his home. He stands before it. He doesn't stand afar from it. He's not trying to manage it or stand over it in leadership from a distance. He is before it. He's not ruling from afar. He's not disconnected from the family. This is good managing that is up close and it is ongoing in the sense of verse 12 that it is in the present tense, again, this verb. So it's continually, it's ongoing oversight of his children and household affairs. And again, with this qualification, I don't think it prohibits a married man who does not have children yet from serving, nor does it prohibit a single man uh, to uh, serve as a deacon. Let me ask you this question, though. And this, this ties into um, the elder um, as well. What do you do if a married man who serves as a deacon, uh, and, but he doesn't have children, and then he has a child? So you evaluated him without looking at how he would be with children, and then he had a child. What do you do? Is he immediately not qualified because you didn't um, measure him on that? 
Same thing would be true if a man was single serving as a deacon and then he got married. So what do you do in those situations? Because there are some who say a man should not be an elder until he has children. And there, are, and some will even say a man should not be an elder until his children have grown up and you've been able to see enough time. And we can say the same thing here. A man should not serve as a deacon until he has children. Does that mean that nobody can serve and, and be a deacon or an elder until they have children? Is that what Paul is saying? No, because Paul also says some, in some way that it's easier to serve or you can serve more fully if you're not Excellent married. point. 1 Corinthians. And Paul himself did not have children. What's going on here then? Here's the, here's the way that we would handle it and have handled this. Um, if... if you would measure a man's standing before his family without children. He's still standing before his household. He has a wife. What's he like? Evaluate him thoroughly in the way that he stands close to a a small household of people. Watch how he cares for his family. Watch how he manages the affairs of his home. And then, as other little souls are added to it, well, just keep doing the same. Evaluate how he does as children come and watch carefully because as the number of souls in a household grow, it requires more from the man. You need to just keep watching. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's instantly not qualified anymore. It means that just like with any other qualifications, don't stop evaluating. You never stop evaluating on any of them. I know one of the elders has a, a, a way that he prays through the elder qualifications continually so that he can keep them in front of him. That's the idea. We want to keep these qualifications constantly before um, so that as your situation changes, as your household begins to... My goodness, I, here's what I've discovered. Uh, managing two and three and four-year-olds is a little different than mad, managing a 13, a 12, and a 10-year-old. And I am counting on my elders and, and the body helping me to continually watch how I'm managing my household. I need that. I never graduate from this, and neither do you. Um, the point is you are present. You are standing before it. Not standing from afar, standing before it. Not playing leapfrog over your house. You're close. You're watching. You're providing guidance for your family. Now, let's go to that tricky verse, verse 11. Where on earth did verse 11 come from? Women must likewise be... Now, just watch this. Verse 8. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine, fond of sort of gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Skip verse 11 for a minute. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, good managers of their children in their own households. For those who have served well, etc. It would seem like we could just keep going. Why is verse 11 there? Why is verse 11 there? Well, you have two options that have met um, interpreters and commentators on this. Two options for how you're going to translate verse 11. And verse 11, the, the, the key word to translate correctly is the first word. I'm in the NAS. It says women. Um, other translations, my guess here, are going to say wives. I think most of them say wives. Some translations, I forget which one it is. I don't know if it's the King James or New King James. But one of them actually translated as deacons, uh, deaconesses. New King James says wives. Wives, okay. 
so what's going on here? Who who are these women? And that's what we need to come up with. There are two options available in the trans that position themselves before you as you look at it. One would be you can translate it as deacons' wives or women, just women in general. That'd be the first way. If if you took it that way, if you said it was deacons' wives, what you mean is um, in verse 11 he says, now the women. And what he means by that are the wives of the deacon, the women who are connected to the deacons that he's been addressing. Then what you're saying, if you take that position, is that then there are not women deacons in the church. There are not deaconesses. They are just the wives of the deacons. Do you understand? If you take that position, you're saying there are no deaconesses in the church. Okay? Um, if you take um, women in this verse, on the other hand, as just general in the sense, then what you mean by that is actually you know, women deacons, deaconesses, serve in the church. These then would not be the women that are necessarily connected to these deacons. There might be a single woman in the church, a godly woman in general, and she is serving in a, a more official servant leadership position in the ministries of the church or in a ministry of the church. And so you have some really good men who say it's deaconesses, and you have some really good men who say it is the wives of deacons. Um, let me tell you where your church is at here, what, where Grace Bible Church is. We believe that it's the wives of deacons, that that's the best translation to take. Um, this means what, what we think Paul is doing here is that he is not highlighting, now understand the flow of chapter 3 here, Paul is not highlighting a third office of servant leadership. Elders, then deacons, and then deaconesses. We do not think he's doing that. Rather, he's only highlighting two offices, elders and deacons, and the ones mentioned in verse 11 are the wives of the deacons. That's what we're saying. Why do we think that is the way to go? I have six reasons for you there that I want to run through with you, just so that you understand this. Here's why I think it's the wives of deacons, why your elders think it's the wives of deacons. First, number one, Paul does not use a third specific leadership title or office position in verse 11, like he did with both overseer or elder in verse 2 and deacon in verse 8 and in verse 12. Rather, he used a generic word, women. It's just a generic word for an adult woman. It would be, for instance, it would be like this in our day. Let me give you three different um, people. Police officer, fireman, woman. Office or position, office or position, just woman. Do you, do you get a feel how, for what that feels like? That's the word that Paul used, just woman. If he wanted to show another office, he could have used another word rather than just women in general, but he didn't there. Um, so this generic word's meaning for women, listen, it doesn't have to stretch at all to mean wife. It doesn't have to stretch at all. That's the way you would refer oftentimes to a wife of a man, the woman. Don't go home and say, woman, 
Okay, that'd be bad. Doesn't quite work the same way. Okay? So this, the word does not have to stretch at all, but guess how far it has to stretch to mean deaconesses? I think it has to stretch much more to mean that. Number two, the placement of verse 11. Where is verse 11 placed in this? This is really interesting. It's sandwiched in the middle of the deacon qualifications. Look, it goes verses 8 to 10 on the deacon, and then you have the woman mentioned in verse 11, and then it goes right back to what? Deacons again. That's an interesting placement, isn't it? It would seem logically disjoint if Paul was introducing a new office. Elders, blah, 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 blah. Deacons, blah, 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 blah. Deaconesses, blah, 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 blah. Wait, I forgot something. Back to deacons. That seems odd that he would spell it out that way. Rather, however, if Paul is um, dealing with wives of deacons, it fits perfectly. Because what does he get to next in verse 12? You have to be husbands of only one wife. That woman. So that's number two. Number three, historically, let's talk about church history. We don't find conclusive evidence for women deacons or actually deaconesses during New Testament times. There's no evidence yet. Um, This is from Alexander Strauch in his book on deacons. Um, The first positive identification of deaconesses that we actually have is found in writings of the Eastern churches of that Roman of the Roman Empire that date around 230 uh, in, in AD 230, so that roughly 230 years after this time, that's the first time that the word deaconess is actually referenced in connection with the church. Now let me just give you something comparable. About 230 years ago, now we signed a Declaration of Independence and a Constitution and we became the United States of America. There are things that we have now present in our life that were not present back then. Cell phones, all kinds of things. It would be strange to take something that we have now in our life and impose it back on that period, would it not? So I want you to get a feel for how long 230 years is. The first time it comes up is 230 years after the New Testament period. And so if somebody would appeal to something written in A.D. 230 and say, well, see, the early church had deaconesses. In the Eastern Empire, they did. That's interesting. That doesn't necessarily mean I've got to change the way I view my Bible and what it says, right? So historically, we don't find evidence of that. Strauch says this, the beginnings of a feminine diaconate are indeed hidden in shadow and darkness and difficult to perceive with any exactness, historically speaking. That would seem strange because deacons are not in shadow or darkness. Elders are not in shadow and darkness because they're spoken about clearly uh, in the New Testament. Number four, the majority of English translations, here's another reason why we take uh, wives of deacons. The majority of English translations actually go with wives rather than women or deaconesses. King James Version goes with wives, NIV, ESV, the New English Bible, the New Translation, the Good News Bible. Um, NASB is one of the only translations which translates it as women. Now, why did they do that? They picked the least interpretive word. They chose to go with the word that said the least 
about trying to influence you one way or the other. They just took the generic meaning of it. It means women. Now, I believe that is absolutely right. I have the position of now having to interpret who are those women. I think those women are the wives of the deacons. Would it be helpful for my position if they did what the ESV did, the NIV, the King James Version, all the other ones, and actually interpreted as wives? Sure, that would be helpful, but that doesn't seal the deal. Do you understand? They, that's, this is why I appreciate about the New American Standard. They're, they're very non-interpretive at many points. They become interpretive at others, just like any translation does. But there's not very many. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure which one does take it as deaconesses. If it's not the King James Version and it's not the New King James Version, I'm not sure who does take it as deaconesses. That's very interesting. Your English translators don't make that interpretive decision. Okay? Number five. Wives of deacons avoids any potential conflict with Paul's earlier teaching in this letter on women not being out in a position of authority over men in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Since these women here in 1 Timothy 3 would be under the ministry of their husbands. Um, and number six, the early church in Acts 6 decided... This is very interesting, guys. In Acts 6, the early church decided to go with all men servants. Prototype deacons. When it might have been thought to be really wise to pick some women because who's not getting fed? Women! What a great opportunity for women's ministry! It wasn't an auto repair ministry. It's an excellent point to bring out, I think. But it would have been a great moment to have an official place for women to serve, but the early church chose to go with qualified men instead. Um, so what does this mean then? Deacon qualifications, verse 8, 9, and 10, and then verse 12, and and something is said in verse 13, and then right in the middle there's women. What does this mean for deacons at our church? Listen, this means that the deacon application process, which a husband goes through, guess what? His wife also needs to have her character evaluated in these areas right here in verse 11. So if you want to talk about you know, this whole position, you want to um, tackle Tom afterwards, please do and talk to him. Let me go through quickly the, the qualifications in verse 11 for the women. Be dignified. She must be dignified. That's the same qualification in verse 8 for the man, so I'm not going to cover that one. Verse 11, I'm not going to cover it again. It's the same thing. Everything that we said up there could be said here. In verse 11, uh, she must not be uh, malicious gossips, or they are not to be malicious gossips. Here's your blank to fill in. Slanderous accusations are not thrown at others. Here's the Greek word. I love this. Diabolos. Diablo. The slanderer. Diabolical. In gossip, many like to tell others anything bad that they found out. Can you imagine what that would have been like in the situation with the with the widows who were not being fed? If if a woman liked sat there and a wife of one of the deacons heard this, or prototype de- wife of one of the prototype deacons hears something, it'd be really easy then when you go to the next widow to make sure she's got food to repeat some things that were said and the way that she slandered. You can just repeat that and. Oh my goodness, it could be wildfire. Now, why is this character quality associated with women? For the same reason that the one woman man is addressed to men and not to women. We have our unique temptations and weaknesses in our, that are rooted in our genders as well. Uh, what does it mean to be temperate? Verse 11. She must be temperate. Here's your blank. 
Avoiding whatever might cloud and prevent clear-headed thinking. Clear-headed, that's what goes in your blank. (coughs) Clear-headed thinking. Uh, The same word is actually used in chapter 3, verse 2, with the overseer. It's the word temperate. There. Oh, is that what it is there, or is it? Yeah, temperate. I switched back and forth at one point doing ESV, and so it's sober-minded, I think, in, in the ESV. So anyway, that's the same word. So the elder qualify, are to have this qualification as well um, that the wife has or of, a, of a deacon. That means she's sober, she's alert, she's watchful. Uh, it includes also, some think, that being free from the clouded thinking that alcohol can bring. This word temperate might be tied with you know, being clear from the, uh, the effects of alcohol. Last qualification for the woman, faithful in all things. Here's your blank. Trustworthy in all matters entrusted to her, whether great or small. She's trustworthy. She's faithful in all things. It doesn't matter if it's something big that she's been asked to do or assist with or a small way that she's coming alongside her husband. She's just trustworthy. She's reliable. She's honest. And she's dependable. She's faithful. She's trustworthy. Lastly, number four, as we finish up here. What is going on in verse 13? For, this is an explanation, those who have served well as deacons... They obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Here's a blank for you. Deacons are highly respected, emboldened servants in the mission. They're emboldened. Um, They have great confidence. To be highly respected means that they have good standing. That's what I got here from verse 13. They have a high standing. Um, And they obtain for themselves. They gain for themselves. It's... It's in the present tense. It's always going on there. They are gaining two things. um, Good standing and great confidence in the faith. The idea of a high standing is a... um, It's the word that is used for a step or a base or a, a foundation, a pedestal. It's like a deacon who serves well gets to be... is is a pedestal in the presence of God that he's set securely with confidence before God. He appears to be able to stand with integrity before God. He has assurance. He has boldness in this. I love what MacArthur says. He says, Those who serve God well and see His power and grace operative in their lives will be emboldened for even greater service. Guys, think about this. Tell me about two guys in Acts 6. Tell me about two guys. Tell me about Stephen and tell me about Philip. Two guys who started by serving bread to the widows. By God's grace, Stephen served food faithfully, did he not? And he was emboldened in his service um, by God's Spirit to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel. Philip served food faithfully, and he was emboldened by God's Spirit in Acts to run with the gospel even into those the towns of those despicable Samaritans. So serving well as a deacon is a platform, an arena, fertile soil that God would grow a man in to embolden him for even greater ministry in our time. We saw that happen with Stephen and Philip, men who made a huge difference for the gospel and for the church. And that needs to be you. You need to aim for these qualifications. What should you do with this? Each page is titled the day of the week. Monday, 
Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, etc. And what we did is we took the qualifications and we put them in a prayer that you can use this as a guide and pray through it. Look up here, everybody. Right here in the middle of each page is where the qualification is spelled out. It kind of tells you what it is and it's worded in a prayer-like form like you could talk to God about what that qualification is. Everything that's before it has to do with being tested and approved and everything at the end of it has to do with um, having a good standing. Okay? So the only thing that changes on each one of those prayers is that middle paragraph as the qualification changes. The exhortation to you from your elders is take this and keep it before you and just one day a week pray for that qualification in your own life. When I think about the men who are in build doing that and doing that consistently, that gets pretty exciting to think about. What God would might do with a bunch of men who are praying to this end to be this kind of a man. If you were not here last week and you did not get one of those handouts, I'm going to put them right up here on the table. I've got about 10 of them, I think, like that. So go ahead and come on up and get those. Let me pray. And we'll close things up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have revealed in the New Testament concerning deacons. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to hold them in the high place that you have them in the, in the church, in the word of God, that we would not think less of them and that we would also not push them beyond their realm of ministry to a place where they're not supposed to be. And so God, would you give us fullness of your spirit so that we might give them their proper place and proper weight in the life of the church. I pray for the deacons of Grace Bible Church that you would help these men to stand with a clear conscience before you, that they would feel the your grace upon them as they serve well. I pray that they would gain a high standing and have great confidence in the gospel and the faith the content of what we believe that is in Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that you would raise up many, many, many more men who are deacon qualified, who can function in a layer of servant leadership in this body that would help the, the, the church be able to continue to advance with the gospel in this community and around the world, that it would be a blessing to the elders as they give even more undistracted attention to the ministry of the word. So God, we look away from ourselves and we look to you and we depend upon you to build this church in this way. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Guys, thank you for coming.